pray. Dearly Father, as we open your word now, may it enlighten us, causing our hearts and our minds to understand you even more. Thank you that your word is truth, that it is alive and active, and we pray that it does its work in our hearts. There's so many things that we will see today that our hearts and our minds will be exposed to. May we not be like the fool that looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks at. Help us to look deep into the mirror of your truth and your word and see you and see us more clearly. We see our own hearts and we see how we are prone to wander. We see how we are prone to cave and to conform to this world. And as we just, in a way, sang a prayer that the church would rise and see their call and follow Christ their captain. Help us to do that now. In your name we pray. Amen. When we think of the topic of work, uh, there's a lot of, to be said about work. Uh, I, was, I spent a little bit here just getting a couple of, um, I thought they were funny quotes off the internet about work just because there's a lot of things that people have to say about work. Uh, one quote I found, it said, nothing, doing nothing is hard to do. The reason why doing nothing is hard to do is you never know when you're finished. All right. Another one that I found, it's hard work never killed anybody, but why take a chance? <laughs> Another one, I guess this guy must have been filling out job applications a lot. He says the closest to perfection a person ever comes is when they fill out a job application. And then last but not least, I think this one must have been written just about the other day. It says, people are still willing to do an honest day's work. The problem is they want a week's pay for it. And all of these things are true. All these things we can chuckle about when it comes to work. But I think many times, because we live on the opposite side of the fall, we forget what work is all about. And so we have a negative view of work when work was never meant to be a negative thing. We'll discuss more of that when we get to Genesis chapter 3 about work, but we are on the other, you're on the front side of the fall where God is going to give Adam some work to do. So let's look at our text here in Genesis 2, 15, 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. In these two short verses, three technically, but in these three verses here, what we see in front of us here is the idea that, again, remember as we understand as a Christian worldview that the Bible defines reality for us. We do not need to look outside of anything other than what the Scripture defines for us and is right in front of us. And so we get these things that God is doing all throughout Scripture, and they are for our good and for His glory. And so we see here that God is going to take man, put him in a garden, and He's going to give man two things to do, to work and to keep. So literally, point number one is going to be the idea of work. Because when Adam is placed in the garden, he is literally said, in some translation it says tend, others it will say the word work, but that literally that tending or working literally means work. All right, There's stuff that you need to do. So I want to make sure we're clear on this. Some of these truths that are very, very basic. Work was given before sin entered the world. Work was given before sin entered in the world. No matter how you feel on Monday morning when you get up to go to work, it is not that you have work to do because of sin. Work was here before sin entered the world. Therefore, work then is part of God's perfect creation. 
That is why many theologians and many people who study Scripture believe even in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be work for us as followers of God to do. But it will not have the same impact as it does in a fallen world. So let's just go through a couple of just basic biblical understandings of work. Again, I said this, so I'm going to reiterate it again. Work was not a result of the fall. The fall only made work more difficult, and we'll study that when we get later in Genesis. Work was not a result of the fall. The fall only made it more difficult. Working the garden was designed by God to be pleasant and a rewarding occupation for Adam. Because remember, this work that God is going to give Adam now is going to give Adam not only fulfillment, but also Adam's purpose. He places him in the garden to do something. He doesn't just place Adam in the garden for Adam to decide what Adam is going to do. He places him in the garden and says, here's what I'm going to give you to do. You need to work the garden, and you're going to need to, we'll find out later, another thing. But we're just dealing with you need to work the garden. And in this here, Adam is going to understand then his role as an image bearer of God, what God did. Because remember, in a way, Adam is working... And he is working because it's a good thing for Adam to do and to bring glory to God because Adam is a reflector or an image bearer of God. What do we know about God so far? God worked in creating. Now Adam is called to work as well. Why? Because Adam is a created being in the image of his father and his father is a worker. And so what is Adam going to be called to do? To work. So now it's interesting here that tending the garden is to be a pleasant, rewarding occupation for Adam. This is something that he is to enjoy and to be thrilled in doing because this is what God has called him to do. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about work. I'm just going to give you a quick, short summary of a couple of things there that the Bible has to say about work. In Leviticus 27.30, we have the idea that the Israelites were told to bring a tithe to the Lord. And why were they told to bring a tithe to the Lord? is because it's to remind Israel that even the source of their ability to work and the sheer fact that God is blessing them is all from God. That Israel is not just doing this rogue on their own, that God is the one who is the supplier, the giver of all things, and even the giver of work for them to do, and they are to thank God by giving money or resources or whatever back. Even they would call it the first fruits, understanding that nothing comes about without God's hand because they are the creature, He is the Creator. In Colossians here, where Paul is talking to them, he tells them there is a work that God has given them to do, and they are to be thankful in it. This is even post-fall. This is even in a sinful world, that the work that God has given them to do, they are to understand that that is God giving them that work, and they are to be grateful and thankful in it. How are we doing so far when we hold the mirror right now up to our own Monday job? Next, in Ephesians 4.28, it talks about we are to work to provide for our basic needs. And the text even goes on to give us the idea that not only are we to work for our basic needs, but also to work hard enough that we are able to help supply those who are unable to work. There will be people in your midst because of sin and injuries and everything else that living in a sinful world that will not have the same ability to work as other people who have the ability to work. And we're not supposed to sit there and say, I'm sorry, boy, that really stinks. We are supposed to work in such a way that we have enough for our own needs as well as giving to others. And I will purposely put you to underline the word needs because there's a massive difference between a need and a want. 
All right, when we have br brothers and sisters in Christ that are struggling with their basic needs, and we go out and buy ten times what we need, and then we start buying once, many times we have to ask ourselves, hey, pause here for a second. Where are we? Now, before you start thinking that the Bible's creating some type of just some people work so others don't have to, the Bible is very clear in Proverbs 21, 25 that laziness is a sin. It condemns the slugger. Even down to the point in 2 Thessalonians where Paul will literally give this command. If you do not work, you should not eat. And the command even in that is Paul is saying, here are the rules that are played out. One of the best ways to get someone to work is to not feed them because guess what their stomach helps them remember to do? Get out there and your, your stomach's going to cause you to go work. These principles are not something that all of a sudden we need to rediscover. We literally need to just follow them as not only in our settings in our own homes, but in our country as well, if we were just take some of these basic principles. This idea of work, this idea that work is something that God has called mankind to do, is something that we need to, as we start thinking through this as believers, to say, what is the work God has given me? So I want to be clear from this. What we see is a pattern that God, in His perfect creative world, understands that each of us has been called to do a work. Now, it's going to be different. Some of us, depending on our strength levels, some of us, depending on our, our ability levels and everything else, there's going to be different work that we are called to. Yet, we are called to work. That is something that we need to proclaim over and over and over and over again. Now, we, when we get into Genesis 3, we'll talk about the struggles that come with it. We will talk about all the pitfalls on both sides of it. But God has called us to work. So now, before we go that any further, here's what I want you who struggle with this to hear. God has called you to work. I'm not saying that means now I don't parent because, well, Pastor Tim said, now I'm working five six extra shifts because God has called me to work and you do not do the work that God has called you to by parenting, all right? Nor do you say to your wife, I'm sorry, dear, I got, Pastor Tim called me to work. We're never going to go out, the two of us, and do anything because I must be at work, all right? And you see how we're exploiting these things. There is a work to do. And I would even say in parenting and in marriage, there is a work to do there as well. Notice, though, not only is Adam to work the garden, says he is to keep the garden. This word keep the garden carries with it to guard or to watch over. Um, you'll see it here as Adam is called to in a way to oversee the garden. That means he has to make decisions about the garden. That means he has to decide, do I put a plant here? Do I put a plant there? Do I move this tree? Do I graft this tree with that tree? Or whatever you do in a pre-fallen garden setting, he is the overseer of it. But what is interesting here in this word overseer, there's an idea of protecting it. Now, that should cause us to pause here for a second. Remember, God created a perfect world. The question should arise, what in the world does he have to protect the garden from? All right, so now, in biblical speculation, there's, this is why I'm really going to move far away and I speculate here. This is where you get people debating is when did Adam, I mean, sorry, when did Satan rebel against you know, God and all these other things going on here. Some say, well, maybe it happened before this. This is why God is saying, Adam, protect it, because he knows that the rebellion's going to come into the garden. Or, as some would say, God is telling him this, because after God is telling him this, Satan is going to rebel. Either way, 
it is very clear that Adam, when he is given the ability to guard the garden, he is given that, and then that ability to guard the garden is literally removed from him and given to someone else. This same word to guard the garden is actually used when Adam and Eve rebel against God and God places someone else to guard the garden. You know who he places to guard the garden? A cherubim guarding the garden, guarding entrance to the garden, to the tree of life. That same word guard there is what Adam is given and that ability to guard and oversee the garden is stripped away from him and given to someone else, which we'll dive into later. So now we have to, before we go into the command that God is going to give, and we've got to talk about Old Testament characters. So we see Adam here, and then we're going to see Seth, and then we're going to see Cain and Abel, which actually Cain and Abel, then Seth, and all these other incredibly gifted men throughout the Bible. You're going to see gifted women throughout the Bible. You're going to see all of them. How do we respond to them? What is the point of telling us about all of them? We're going to end the service in a song. Now, we're not there yet. I still got two points. But we're going to end the service in a song talking about how Christ is the better Adam. Now, we will develop this far greater, but we've got to introduce the song to you now for you to be able to understand it. So when we talk about it even greater length, you'll get it now. But even in the song that we end with, there is so much depth in this that Adam is not the end of it all. Now, at the moment, Adam seems pretty great, doesn't he? He's in the garden, tending the garden. We don't... If you don't know, let's pretend like we don't know the fall's coming, right? Adam, perfectly created guy, ready to go. You know, what could be wrong? God's going to give him Eve, and they're going to live in the garden together. No issues, right? Well, we're going to find out that Adam's going to fail. We're going to find out that Seth is going to fail. We're going to find out that Abel and Cain and all these guys are going to fail. But what do the, all their failures do? Point us to someone better. Until one day, the perfect Adam is going to come and do all that the first Adam couldn't do. And this is giving an example of how this plays out. We will spend some time, I haven't decided if it's going to be in Sunday school or if it's going to be doing a sermon, looking at Adam, who was now commanded to do something in the paradise. With a full belly, Adam is commanded, do this and obey. Christ, the perfect Adam, is going to be driven into the wilderness 40 days without food with an empty stomach and succeed where the first Adam is going to fail. And so, in a way, you're supposed to see this beauty of it. Because even when Mark in his gospel is writing about Jesus being tempted, what we see is, and it says in Mark, and he was driven amongst the wild animals. Trying to help you understand what's Adam doing amongst all these animals that are not wild, with a full belly and everything else. And Adam, in his time of tempting, absolutely failed. But Christ is going to succeed in his tempting. That is why we look to Christ, not to Adam. But as we are going along now, we don't know that part of the story yet, speaking. And we've got to look at Adam, because Adam is given a command. Notice the command here in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man. All right. Now, whenever we get a command from God, there's a biblical pattern that is usually seen in these commands. Notice the biblical pattern that is here. It says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree of the garden, God says, guess what? Go ahead and eat of it. Fill your stomach. Enjoy these trees that God, by His grace and mercy, has planted for Adam. So from a spot of mercy and grace, now God is saying, as a lovingly father, out of all the trees you may eat, because I love you and I care for you, I'm placing you in a garden in paradise. Now, 
go fill your stomach with all these things except there's one tree that you can't eat. And here's what he commands him. From every tree, but do not eat from this tree. So let's think about all of the trees he's able to eat from. The tree of life is in the garden, is it not? Now again, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I need to bring it back up again. We don't have the tree of life mentioned here, but it was mentioned in last week's passage. This tree of life is a tree that if eaten, it seems, as the Bible clearly says, that it, it seems that this person who eats of the tree of life has eternal life. All right? That is why they are limited access to the tree of life after they rebel. We never know if Adam and Eve ever, ever ate of that tree. But we do know that eating of that tree, after they have eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was a bad thing, and God brings a cherubim down and says, you're not doing it. So what we see, though, in this passage is a beautiful picture of the mercy and the grace of God. You may eat of this tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now in this passage here, this is one of the things that we will start to see a pattern that God is going to now lay out throughout the Bible. And what we see in this pattern here is an agreement, or another way of saying is a covenant, that God is making with man. Uh, many um, theologians will call this thing either the covenant of Eden, or some of it will call it the covenant of works. But let me explain what a covenant is. A covenant is when two or more parties come together to make a contract. Where there's an agreement on promises, sometimes there's stipulations, sometimes there's privileges, sometimes there's responsibilities. But at the end of the day, a covenant is made between two or more people with specific things in place. So let's look at this covenant. You can eat of all of this tree. You cannot eat of that tree. The day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. So this is an agreement that God is making with man. As the Bible indicates, though in other areas, that we have two different types of covenants. There are some types of covenants that are conditional, and there are some types of covenants that are unconditional. This is a conditional covenant. What is the condition of this covenant? Obedience. Because if you disobey, now the covenant is broken. So as defined by in the, one of the confessions of faith, defined in the Westminster Confession of Faith, here's what it says about this covenant. Wherein life was promised to Adam and his posterity, or his descendants. So eternal life is promised to Adam and his descendants upon, and here's the condition, perfect and personal obedience to one command. What is the one command? Don't eat of that tree. Because the day you eat of that tree, you will die. But if you do not eat of that tree, you have eternal life. And so at the end of the day, this eternal life is promised to Adam and all of his descendants if they simply do just simply one thing. And what is the one thing not to do? not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it's interesting. They disobey this command. They die. You eat, you die. It's about as simple as you can get. I mean, there's not too many other things. Like when you look at kids and like, you can go anywhere you want, just not that room. How hard is it to understand? Just not that room. I mean, this is about as basic as a command as you can possibly have. It is not that Adam and Eve are ignorant. It's not that Adam and Eve don't understand the verbiage that God is speaking them through. This is about as clear as you can have it. Yet what we see here 
is even in the garden, we start to start to see this interesting idea of even choice. Because even in the tree, what do we see in the tree? The tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. You start seeing two choices there. Good or evil. Very similar to obey or disobey. You know, all right, we're starting to see this pattern here. And so what we have in front of Adam right now is a choice. Point number three is the choice. Now, here's what I've been really trying all week long, and I'm trying to help us understand this. Not too many, well, many years ago, there was this time called the Enlightenment. And during the time of the Enlightenment, we started to get a way of thinking pounded upon us. And the way of thinking that was pounding upon us was the idea that in order to be fully human, you must have self-autonomy. Self-autonomy means you get to determine whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. And this idea of self-autonomy, that you can decide whatever you want to decide, whenever you want it, is the hallmark of being human. This is why this type of thinking has come into everything else that is happening right now in our world. Because if self-autonomy is God, then all of a sudden someone's saying, but what you're doing is wrong, you can't say that. Why? Because what is God? Self-autonomy. And so what happens now is we can get confused with that even when we hit the topic of this idea of Adam's will. Or as in the church world, we like to have these conversations about free will, right? And all of these things that go on. But what happens is this, is we've so clouded it with an enlightenment type of understanding that we have not, what I'm going to try to argue is here, allowed the Bible just to say what the Bible's saying. So we like to re remember the pendulum likes to swing on both sides, right? So we love to run to one side. If we don't like the way that sounds, we run back to the other side. So what I'd like to do is just walk through what is very clear from the text, what we have in front of us here. So what we have here, in Adam in his pre-fallen state, Adam has the ability to obey this command. All right, so either he obeys the command or he does not obey the command. Here, Adam is given a choice, and this choice there are actually consequences to his choice. Adam is given a choice, and there's actually consequences to his choice. Adam, in his pre-fallen state, has the ability to obey or to disobey. Now, where we get confused is some say that Adam has self-autonomy here and can do whatever he wants. I'd like to respond to that and say, no, Adam does not have the ability to do whatever he wants. Here, I'll explain why. Adam is limited by his nature. So, I'll give you an example. Adam, in his pre-fallen state, he can will to have a child by himself, but he cannot have a child by himself, even if he wants to will himself to be fruitful and multiply. What his nature is limiting is his being a male. He needs a female for that. That is why God is going to look at this and say, it is not good the man could be alone. Because it doesn't matter how much Adam in his pre-fallen state exercises his will to will himself to do something, he's not going to do it. Also, Adam here is limited to choices. What are his only two choices to God's command? Obey or what? Disobey, all right? So this self-autonomy thing we're already starting to see is even what? Limited as well, right? Another thing, too, that Adam has, Adam cannot fly. He cannot breathe underwater. Why? Because he is a created being. He cannot also create something out of nothing and say, God, you planted these two trees. Now here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to plant my own tree that's going to reverse if I were to eat this and that. Adam can't do that because he is a creature, not the creator. Adam is limited by these things. And so we can sit here and we can look at this choice. We can sit here and get ourselves in Gordian knots tied up as what happens if Adam doesn't do it? What happens if Adam does do it? What about this freedom? What about that freedom? We can get ourselves all tied up. But as we read through the text, I believe a faithful reading of the text leads us with this. We are to read this text and watch Adam with great interest and delight to see what he will do. Will he be obedient? Will he obey? I mean, it's about as simple as a command as we can have, right? Will he obey? And if he does obey, will he then be worthy of praise for doing the right thing and using the freedom of choice that God has given him properly? Will he obey that way? And so we sit wondering what will happen. Will Adam use this choice that he has, and obey God or not. But here's what I want to also establish so far. Because we can get very quickly, I think, down wrong paths. And so here's the part I want to make sure we're clear on. God, before He created the world, God had planned the beginning from the end. Before the foundation of the world, He has brought all things together, and they are going to happen just the way He decreed it. That is clear from Scripture. Here's also is clear from Scripture. Adam has been given a choice with eternal consequences. That is also clear from Scripture. What Adam chooses, he is responsible for. God is not the author of sin. The consequences of Adam's sin are just as real as a choice that Adam made to sin. Yet we know, and I'll go from the very beginning, that God has decreed the beginning from the end, and He has decreed the beginning from the end, and everything that has taken place takes place according to God's decreed will. Now you may sit there and say, well, wait a minute, if God already decreed it, was Adam just doing what God had already decreed or not? Right? And guess what? The Bible does not answer that question, so I would say we don't ask that question. Guess what we ask? Am I being obedient to what God has called me to do? Because we, can, we love to go down this route, right? We love to go and look under things. And this is where I would love to say to ourselves, if we not understand Deuteronomy 29, 29, because Deuteronomy 29, 29 reminds us that the secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. So what are we supposed to proclaim? Both of these things, that God is sovereign over all things. He has decreed the beginning from the end. And Adam's decision does not all of a sudden cause God to have to do plan B. All right, isn't it interesting that even now, I'll give you an example right, real quick. All right, so it's raining right now, right? So let's go all the way back through. So this morning, actually yesterday afternoon, we're going to do a little side note here. Yesterday afternoon, I was, we're driving the car. I said, Allison, I think we're going to start, is it supposed to rain? You know, the weatherman had said like 90% chance of rain yesterday, right? On today. And I said to Allison, why don't we just have a couple of guys, I'll read a text about God bringing rain, and we'll have a couple of guys pray for it to be raining. And it, I'm thinking it'll probably be raining while we're doing that, all right? And so then the whole time I'm muttering in my mind, am I going to do this or not? And it's 10 o'clock this morning, and what is it outside? Sunny. All right, and I'm like, oh, that was not the way this whole thing was supposed to, you know, like, 
work out. We're supposed to be thanking God for the rain that he already had brought. All right. And so then I'm like, do I even mention it? Do I even start off? We should thank God for the rain that really hasn't come yet, that maybe will come, that maybe will not come. All right. And God, who decreed the beginning from the end, I said, I just know you, Lord, you laid on my heart. We're just going to be faithful to that. And did God know when we needed rain? And it came exactly when he had planned it. And we are not to sit here and say, did we somehow tempt God this way or that way? Where are we supposed to respond? Thank you, Lord, for bringing the rain. We didn't deserve it. We don't deserve anything. Thank you for bringing rain when you needed. We need the rain. So even when it comes to things like this, of Adam's sin and all of these other things, I think there's some things that we can so bend ourselves out of shape about instead of looking at our own personal holiness and saying, God, where do I need to be more conformed to your will? Because you are the one who has decreed the beginning from the end. Because we all know, if you haven't read Genesis, what's happening in Genesis chapter 3? What's Adam going to do with his choice? What's Adam going to do with this free will that he has, that's been given him by God as an image bearer of God? What is he going to do? Is he going to do the right thing and obey? And all of a sudden then we go, are we going to thank Adam for all of eternity for making that right choice? What are we going to find out? No, that Adam is going to fail and he's going to fail miserably. And what do we know? That God from the beginning of the world knew that was going to happen because he has decreed the beginning from the end. All of this was to point to him and to him alone because only he is going to come and be that perfect one. Because think about this. The covenant that God made, the covenant of works, was made with God and man, right? Do this, God says, and you will have life. That is why we need, not only do we need God to do something, we need the perfect God and man to come to live the perfect life that Adam could not live, that we needed a God-man to come and hold the covenant that Adam would never have kept. And so we, we're standing here looking at the God, the creator of the heavens and earth, who his ways are unsearchable. Because we could ask ourselves, why in the world, God, would you create a perfect world and then say to Adam, hey, you got a choice if you want to mess this thing up or not, even though God had already decreed what was going to happen from the foundation of the world. Why do that? And sometimes we can stand there and pause, but here's the point, and here's the thing that I would love for us to understand this over and over and over again. And here's what I'd love to say at the end of the day, here's what I think is our only response to it all. Everything God does is perfect and completely wise and is the fittest means to accomplish everything he has decreed. How many have heard that before? If you haven't, I've actually said that every single sermon except for one. Because guess what I'm praying is as a church we understand? That everything God does is perfectly wise and is the fittest means to accomplish everything he has decreed. And here's why. It is easy for us when it is raining outside to say, oh, that is so right, isn't it? But when we're holding a loved one that should not have passed as early as they passed, and we're holding him in our hands, can our hearts say the same thing? That everything God does is perfect and is completely wise and is a finished means to accomplish everything he has decreed. Do we really trust him that much? Because it's easy to trust him when the crops are getting what they need. But it's hard to do it when, and you can fill in the blank. Because here's what happened. I had the privilege of going seeing the Varieties this week. So I'm in there talking to Larry and Dot. And as I'm sitting there talking to them, 
in 2002, my, my grandparents, both of them were 84 years old, and they were driving down the road one day, and they hit someone. Both of the airbags employed, and they were both killed by the airbags because of their age. Now I'm sitting and looking at two 85-year-olds who survived with broken injuries. That doesn't seem fair, does it? That doesn't seem right. Why their grandparents, but mine were taken. The only answer we have this side of eternity is this. Everything God does is perfect and completely wise and is the fittest means to accomplish everything he has decreed. Do I really trust him? Do I sit there and say, thank you, Lord, that you preserved that life? Thank you, Lord, that you took that life. It's easy, but it's not. Because at the end of the day, do I really trust him? I think a lot of these things play into our own heart and mind as we read the book of Genesis and we say, God, why would you do it this way? Why do you do it that way? Why this? Why that? And the answer from heaven comes, do you trust me that what I'm doing is for your good and my glory? Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you that it is by your grace that we live and that we move and have our being. As we awake from our, our sleep Monday morning, help us to understand the work that you've called us to do. We are to do for your glory. As we're about ready to sing a song that reminds us again of the depth of who you are. The beautiful understanding of Scripture. Help us to see it in all of its glory, how all of this points to you and you alone. We ask these things in your son's name we pray. Amen.